0: I like it when you say a phrase that has obviously been translated from Chinese. Human flesh digos.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Today's episode is with the journalist Casey Hall. I'm always grateful when a journalist agrees to talk with me on this podcast, because the one thing they all have in common is that they never want to be the subject of the news themselves. The other journalist who has come on the show before was Eric Olander from Season 1, Episode 3, so please check out that episode if you haven't done so already. Where Casey's story differs the most from Eric's is that Casey's recent focus has been on reporting trends in lifestyle and consumerism. If you would like to hear us talk more about her earlier career in news journalism in China, please subscribe to the premium version of the podcast on Patreon internationally or on iFaDien if you're in China. Just head to mosaicofchina.com and follow the links there. Right, on with the show. Well, thank you so much, Casey. I'm here with Casey Hall. And Casey, what is your title?
1: I'm the Asia correspondent for the Business of Fashion.
0: Okay. Well, we'll come to that. But before we do, I wanted to ask you the burning question, which is what is the object that you've bought that in some way defines your life here in China?
1: It is a vintage copy of my Lonely Planet guide, um, which will be of absolutely no use to anybody (laughs) anymore. (laughs) A a vintage copy of Lonely Planet in China in a place that changes so quickly. It was my gateway to China initially. Um, When I first came, I was with my friend, and we backpacked around China for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used our Lonely Planet to decide where we were going to go. We didn't have a plan. We were just kind of going from one place to another. And at that time, after reading through the whole Lonely Planet guide, I made a list that was three A4 pages long of all <sighs> the places that I wanted to see in China. And after 13 years, I am more than two pages through. I'm, I'm oh, getting right. there. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you. And that book opens up such a lot of conversation starters, one of which being that you are a journalist. Mm -hmm. And you have written in a similar style, I would say, to Lonely Planet, in that you tend to focus on society and culture and things that have a bridge between China and the outside world.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, tell me about your experience then. Where does your work in journalism start?
1: Um, In Australia, I did a degree in journalism at RMIT and after graduating I went to work for a commercial TV station. Um, My first job was answering the phones, answering the news line so people would ring in um, with their story ideas and it was my job to decide whether it was a story or not, Mm. um, which is great training. It's a good way to also become a little bit immune to criticism and what other people think. A lot of, you know, not the most stable people in the world like to ring into TV stations, oh, so right. it was good though. it had a really good grounding, and I went from there to becoming like a researcher and and kind of field producer on that show and then, after doing that for three years, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband and my best friend had decided independently that they were both moving to China. So I thought maybe that would be the thing to do. <laughs> I came with very little expectations about what my work life would be like. Mm. And what I found then and what I think is still true today is that the English language media sphere in China is small mm. um, and it's transient. So just by virtue of being here for a long time, I've been able to come across a lot of really great opportunities um, just because, you know, it's, it's easy to build a network um, with people who want content from China. And I've been here from 2007, so before the Olympics, to today. So it's never been difficult for me to find work here
0: (laughs) (laughs) right absolutely and i know where you are today the business of fashion but that's not the starting point is it
1: um i worked for a magazine that was part of the that's network it was called news views and reviews nvr Mm. and from there i went on to become the managing editor of a, a city lifestyle magazine network talk magazines there was six magazines around the country and as a newcomer to Shanghai, it was a phenomenal way to get to know the city. Mm. You know, it's a way to get to know every restaurant and every shop and all these people in the in the community. You're
0: really in the traffic of what's going on, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even then there was lots of old China hands that were saying that, you know, you came too late. It's, <laughs> it's not like it wasn't the old days. Mm. And For me, actually, the biggest difference in my China experience is After the first four years, I went to school full-time and studied Chinese. Ah. So for the first four years I was here, I had like survival Chinese. But after studying full-time for two years, it was like I had been a blind and a deaf person (laughs) writing about a place where if you're there for a couple of days, you can write an article. If you're there for a couple of months, you can write a book. And if you're there for more than a couple of years, you can't write more than a line. (laughs)
0: Yes, I've heard it said in different ways, but that's a very nice one. You see people come in, they fly in for that week and they write the article, which then goes global. And you must think, oh God, what do you know about that, though?
1: Yeah, I do when it comes to some things, for sure. And I think that in some ways that tradition is unhelpful to the mutual understanding of what is happening in China and and the way that people read that outside of China. So if there's any frustration, it is that. I think um, what seems to always be the stories about China are big China, bad China, weird China. Yeah. And I think that just having that portrayal, big, bad, weird China, is not helpful.
0: I've never heard it said so succinctly. Thank you for being part of this project, which I hope is not big, bad, weird China. Um. Let's go on then. What was the next phase?
1: So, I couldn't work full time, but I, I had time in the afternoons where I could start freelancing. I did that for the next six years, basically. Mm. I've not felt particularly limited in terms of the things that I can cover. My attitude has always been that there is a way that you can cover the country in a meaningful way that is more nuanced and based more in society and and culture than it is the top-line government and, and what's important to them.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think, the line that all of us who are in China have to navigate. So who were your clients then during those times? You say they were international publications.
1: Oh, I worked for a lot of different publications. Um, The Wall Street Journal Asia, I did some stuff for. The International New York Times. They have a a section called Great Homes, and I was doing the Shanghai Great Homes for them, which was such a fun job to get to go into people's homes and sticky beak around. It suits me. (laughs) (laughs) Can you think of an example? Oh, there's so many. So I saw a lot of great renovated lane houses. It's also kind of about interesting ways that people live in a space. So one of the most interesting ones I did was actually a a warehouse that was at the end of Metro Line 3 near the Forest Park. It, It had been like a warehouse conversion, basically, like they'd made it into a huge kind of apartment. Oh, I'll have
0: to ask you for a photo of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned New York Times. What other ones did you work for?
1: One of the main ones that I worked for was Women's Wear Daily. Um, Women's Wear Daily, yeah, WWD was. Uh, fashion trade publication, they were looking for someone in mainland China to be their contributor. I mean, I wrote a lot about, and I still do today, I wrote a lot about the development of China's consumer culture. Mm. Um, That's been one of the themes that's really kind of run through a lot of my work. For example, about kind of the battle between coffee and tea in China.
0: And this is the new phenomenon of the tea shops that are kind of using the Starbucks model in China, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Starbucks has had phenomenal success in China, but I think that a lot of people are not necessarily convinced it's because Chinese people love coffee. I think um, it has much more to do with having somewhere to meet up with someone, having somewhere to spend your 15 minute break at work and, you know, somewhere that's just easy to set up your laptop. I think those things are probably more important than the actual coffee product. I see.
0: Yes. And you're right, because I've been to places around China and then you see Starbucks and you walk in and it's this clean, quiet environment, whereas the outside might be very different. So I guess that's the kind of atmosphere they're trying to emulate.
1: Yeah, it's a huge, huge thing here. Haiti hey is phenomenally successful. And I'm still writing about Haiti, hey weirdly, from a kind of fashion and beauty perspective, because a lot of these tea companies, Lilla Cha as well, have partnered with beauty brands and done kind of cross promotional collaborations, uh, which is, you know, not something you necessarily see a lot in the West, you know, beauty brands collaborating with food and beverage. But in China, it's really a thing. Maybe it's also because the um, tea drinks are quite colourful. Mm Um, So, for example, there was one collaboration that was a peach drink, so it's kind of like, you know, a pretty orangey-pink colour, with a blush, which is a similar kind of colour. So, in a way, it works more naturally. But I also think from a consumer point of view, people are more accepting of it. There's less stringent rules in people's minds about what is appropriate or not appropriate.
0: Yes, we seem to have got these lines of convention in certain things and then you go to a different culture and you don't have the same history with these conventions so you can go over the lines, can't you?
1: Yeah, I think with China something I've always loved is the way that people dress without codes in a way. Like unless you went to a very big law firm or something very, very serious, it would be very rare to see people wearing business attire in a mm. in a Western context, you know, like that sense of making it up as you go along, and it wasn't bound by what is appropriate in a workplace setting. Mm. Well, let's take this
0: chance now to fast forward to your life today. So you are the Asia correspondent of Business or Fashion. What are you seeing from that perspective
1: there's, uh, there's been huge changes um, between generations in China and, and generations in China are only five years. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about, you know, the post-80s and post-90s and then the post-95s and then the post-2000s as being vastly different in the way that they think about things, in the way that they um, buy things. Um, you know, I see younger consumers in particular and I see study after study kind of backing this up that um, there is much more of a focus on an individual unique identity and expressing that um, in the way that, you know, you might put your clothes together or you might express yourself on social media so that other people can see what kind of person you are. There's not just one, this is good, and then there's the rest. There are so many variants of what is good, what is cool, what people want to buy into now.
0: Which you would say is similar to what fashion and luxury is in the West, right? Because in the West, you don't wear head-to-toe brands. You are able to mix and match with this is a cheap thing, this is something I found in a market, this is something I found while traveling, and then the skill of putting it together is what makes you fashionable, right?
1: Yeah, the skill of putting together things that suit your personality and can make other people appreciate who you are Mm. um, is what most of us would call a fashionable person, I think. And I see it even not just across different generations but across different cities in China. I always see girls from Chengdu, for example, who are just able to put together a look that another person would not be able to put together in a way that looks um, cohesive and effortless. But those girls, they have a knack. There's something about Chengdu.
0: More and more I'm hearing people say that if you want to go where there's cool, it's actually Chengdu, right?
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I love Chengdu, Um, the way that people seem to live their lives there. um, And I'm saying this as a visitor of a few days, so it's like going back to what we were saying before, you know, like it's making a judgment based on um, a very limited experience of life there. But just the way that people's attitude seems to be very relaxed. um, And when you go into a shop, almost universally when you're leaving, people will say, manzol, like travel safely kind of, send-off, you know, you don't hear that in Shanghai.
0: No, it's all got a little bit too impersonal here, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, Shanghai is a very commercial place. It is a financial centre, and I think that in any world financial centre, that same feeling, that same kind of focus on commerce does give it a different kind of sheen.
0: Yes, the idea of wealth has been normalised here.
1: Yeah, the idea of wealth and the focus on it – as a pursuit. And so with that in mind, who actually is your readership? So I write for the global business fashion site, which is read by business fashion professionals from around the world who are interested in the China market. Some of it is quite consultative, like how to approach China. The most important thing that i offer is an understanding of what is happening and how it's important you know how people are going about their lives how they're shopping using e-commerce for example social media i think those things can be quite difficult for people to understand and they are so important for doing business in china for any segment
0: yeah what do you say about the market these days what changes have happened
1: I spoke to someone um, quite recently who called COVID-19 the great accelerator. Mm. And I think that um, that is a very apt description. A lot of what I'm writing about in terms of the trends in the market in China are things that were happening anyway, but COVID really pushed it to the next level. So for example, um, a trend for wellness and therefore sports and therefore sportswear and sports brands, that's been happening for quite a long time. But, you know, you get a deadly pandemic kind of on the scene, and that's going to increase their focus on health and wellness. The pivot to digital, that was already something that China was doing ahead of other countries, but coronavirus really pushed that to the next level. Also, I think that there has been a pride in China and how it has handled um, COVID-19. And so I think that that represents an opportunity for domestic brands um, that might not have been as popular the change in that mentality has been accelerated by COVID as well. And finally, I I mean, I was recently writing about the Daigo trade. Daigo, Uh, what's that? It's surrogate shoppers. Daigo has traditionally been a big part of China's luxury industry. People who are either students living overseas or people working overseas or people travelling overseas um, buying and, and reselling luxury products or beauty products back to China. There's a huge trade coming out of Korea.
0: Yes, of course, because when I go to Korea or even other parts of the world, you see a lot of Chinese tourists at these luxury malls. So these these malls aren't for the local market at all. They're for the travelling Chinese.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'm right in saying that in 2019, Chinese travellers took 150 million outbound trips. So there's a lot of Chinese travelers who are traveling around the world and buying luxury products while they're outside. But then there's a professional element, the Daigo, who sell to their contacts in China, often via WeChat, and send them back. Or in the case of Korea, Jeju Island is a duty-free island that's very, very close to China. They are human-flesh Daigo, so they themselves bring suitcases of duty-free stuff back and resell it in China.
0: (laughs) I like it when you say a phrase that has obviously been translated from Chinese, human flesh daigos.
1: Yes, (laughs) human flesh daigo. Um, The pandemic has really obviously affected this industry. When people can't travel, they can't just pop over to Korea and pick up a suitcase of beauty products. But the story I was trying to get at is whether it might be the end of this tradition of daigo, which is accountable for a large percentage of luxury purchases of Chinese consumers. Right, so I
0: guess the foreign brands that you write for, they would rely on these daigos for a lot of their sales.
1: Yeah, absolutely, they do. Um, And that's an uncomfortable situation, I think, for a lot of foreign brands because brands don't love a grey market. Um, A grey market lessens their control over the messaging, it lessens their direct relationship with their customers.
0: Right, so you mean that the company can do all its marketing in China, but then if the products are purchased overseas, the marketing department for the china office of the brand doesn't know if their marketing was successful or not because the shopper in china has actually purchased it from a whole different market
1: they've purchased it from a whole different market and they've purchased it after seeing the photos that have been supplied by the daigo not by the brand Oh, these are not kind of high-end beautiful images it's what works for a daigo but it's not something that a brand would necessarily like to see as their marketing images right a lot of the Daigo are more like personal shoppers. Like they have a relationship with their group of clients and they're really trusted. Like they're almost like mini kind of influencers within their own groups. And so they have a lot of power and influence over what people buy.
0: Fascinating.
1: So it's not just parallel importing, it's parallel branding. It is. And Brands don't love it on the whole, but there is definitely an opportunity in kind of, you know, you've got Harnessing
0: this, the Daigo as a influencer, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's different than working with another kind of influencer. Um, but if you were a small brand and you wanted to kind of seed some interest in your brand, then I think that people could do worse than trying to tap into a, a Daigo network because they already have such influence in 2020, especially in a year in which sales are harder... To come by. The loss of Daigo sales can be significant to a company. I mean, a lot of companies are really working hard to pivot their sales to a reshoring within China. And that's been happening. You know, there's been a huge bounce for a lot of luxury players in terms of their in-China sales. Right. But whether that makes up for the, what they're losing from the Chinese sales overseas is an open question. So I, I would say it's very unlikely to make up the whole amount. Well, thank you.
0: For someone who evidently does not understand fashion, just take one look at me. You've made it very, very interesting. Thank you so much for that. Anytime. (laughs) Let's move on to part two. Okay, we're on to part two. Okay. Question one. What is your favourite China-related fact?
1: Big numbers in China, I think. As a Chinese language learner, I don't know whether you've had the same thing, but big numbers are the hardest thing for me. Yeah. The way that Chinese people organise big numbers is by tens of thousands and then by hundreds of millions, <laughs> um, which is not a natural Thing for an English speaker to be able to translate directly. So I will write down a number and have to put all the zeros and then count back and do a comma after every three zeros <laughs> in order to be able to do it. And my Chinese friends do the same thing when yes. they hear English big numbers, but they have to do a comma after every four zeros yes, so that they can understand it.
0: <laughs> yes. So if that wasn't clear to anyone who doesn't know the numbering system, basically we would have one comma and then three noughts for a thousand but they would have one comma followed by four noughts for 10,000, right? Yeah. Okay, question two. Do you have a favorite word
1: or phrase in Chinese? I do. It's not one you come across very often. Oh. So I think for a lot of foreigners, a phrase that would be very frustrating is mei ban fa. Mei ban fa. Which means there's no way, no method, no way of doing something. And... I have a few times in my life come across someone who instead of saying May Banfa says shangi I I'll think of a way.
0: Oh Shangi Yeah. Oh, that's great. That really turns it around.
1: Yeah, and it's happened to me a few times where you would expect someone to shrug their shoulders and say Mei Banfa but they've gone the other way and really surprised me. And so I think it's because it pops up in these situations where I'm least expecting it that is my favorite favorite phrase to hear.
0: Oh, I love it. Because the May Banfa has such a resignation about it and it's just like, Don't even try, just forget it. And it seems so final. So yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah. The first time I ever came across it was I was trying to park my bike in a crowded bike parking space and I looked at the bike parking attendant basically like, Is there a way I can do this? And he said, Wa Shang Banfa and I said, Thank you Oh wow, I wanna hug that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was a wonderful man. Yeah.
0: Great. Next, what is your favourite destination within China? And I'm looking at that book still in front of us and the, the thing you said about having three pieces of paper.
1: Yeah, I've been able to knock over quite a few now. There are still um, quite a lot of places in the south, in Yunnan province, that I haven't been able to get to. So that's where a lot of my final piece of paper is concentrated on. I do love Sichuan province. Mm. Um, many years ago, I went to Zhujiai National mm. Park which is just one of the most spectacular places I've ever seen. A few years after I went, there was a a major earthquake, um, which damaged the park, and I would be very interested to go back and see what it looks like now and, and see how different it is. Yeah. Next question, if you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? Jembing, I've said for so many years that people should be exporting jembing to the West because we foreigners all love that stuff. Mm. And it's a wonderful hangover cure. And how about the things that you wouldn't miss? I think I would not miss the level of bureaucracy. If I never had to go to a Chinese bank again, um, <laughs> I would be a happy at You
0: have to like take a whole file of paperwork, don't you?
1: <laughs> I have to take a whole file of paperwork and half a day. And even then I'll probably have to go home and get more paperwork. <laughs>
0: yep. Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China?
1: I'm going to answer this in a little bit of a less lighthearted way. Um, I think that for my husband and I, who have been here for such a long time, one of the things that we would say has been a surprise over the entire time we've been here is that we don't have that many close Chinese friends. And we have some, and some wonderful, wonderful friends. But there is still a difficulty, I think, um, with forming widespread meaningful relationships between foreigners and Chinese people. My communication skills are quite good. I can speak Chinese quite well. I feel like it's not a a language barrier. Um, It is much more of a cultural barrier that is difficult to overcome. I guess I thought that over time it would become easier. But in many ways it doesn't. Like it's easy to have a lot of acquaintances, but a kind of more deeper level relationship with Chinese people we found really hard to execute.
0: Yes. I agree with you. Um I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think Shanghai being a big, imposing city is one of those reasons. Um, it would be the same if you were in London. You know, If you were in London, you would gravitate towards other non-Londoners, basically, mm-hmm. because sure. a lot of people in London would have friends since they were at school, and uh, they're not interested necessarily in newbies who are maybe transient and might leave. Yeah, I think, though, with the cultural piece, yeah, what you say is true, and it's something which I see especially with people who are in relationships with other foreigners. I think if you have one of you who is Chinese, then just naturally you tend to hang around with more people who are Chinese. And it just is a little bit more difficult when both of you are non-Chinese.
1: I think that's very fair to say. What is the answer? I don't know. I don't know. And it's something that has been for a long time something that was surprising to both of us. Yeah. Next question.
0: Where is your favourite place to go to eat or drink or just hang out?
1: Um, this is a question that's changed quite a lot since we had children we have <laughs> we have three little girls who are five and three and one and gosh so much of our leisure time now is spent just doing kid related stuff i I've always hated malls my entire life and I spend so much time in <laughs> malls now I can't say it's my favorite place still to be but it's an awfully convenient um, place to get some kid-related activities. <laughs> and in, in a place like Shanghai, for example, where the weather's not always good, the mm. air quality's not always good, also very convenient. Um, oh, where do I love – I mean, um, just this morning I was at um, Shanghai Lander Cafe in Wuyuan I just love being there. Um, That's quite a new one, right? It is quite new. And I go there to work sometimes. But to be honest with you, I, I go there more when I just want to have, like, a little break – from everything. I started knitting last year as a hobby, and at least once a week, I like to go to Shanghai Lander Cafe and drink a flat white and spend an hour knitting and listening to a podcast. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, it's not the most exciting life I lead, but that's my self-care.
0: Oh, I like it. What is the best or worst purchase you've made in China?
1: If it's Greater China, The absolute best gift that I've ever given anyone was an original Star Wars poster that was in a cinema in Hong Kong in 1978 um, of the first Star Wars movie. My husband loves Star Wars (laughs) and his parents met and married in Hong Kong I loved giving it to him. and I told him months and months ahead of Christmas that I got him the best present ever in the history of the world. And he was like, you might want to manage expectations a little bit. You're building it up a lot. I said, I'm so confident that this is the greatest <laughs> present that anyone has given anyone. <laughs> I'll take a photo for you.
0: Yes, please. Next question. What is your favorite WeChat
1: sticker? Okay, send it to me now. It is a sticker of Elon Musk on stage in Shanghai doing a really awkward dad dance, looking like a bit of a tool. <laughs> um, the reason that I like this sticker so much is that I use it in so many different contexts. Oh, I mean, I use it in celebration, like yay. I also use it as like... Well, that was weird. Um, I also <laughs> use it when like, when I want to say that something's like failed. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the one sticker that can mean so many things. Oh,
0: you're right. It's like a blank canvas upon which you can put whatever emotion you're feeling.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you might not realise it at first glance, but you can use it in a hundred different scenarios.
0: Yes, I see that. <laughs> Amazing.
1: What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? These days, I've become a lot more au fait with Disney songs over the last couple of years. So I could bang out any number of Disney classics right now at karaoke. <laughs> and In Chinese, even? Let sui it go. Sweetaba, sweetaba. Yep. I don't know any of the other words aside from sweetaba. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. And finally, what other China related news sources do you rely on? Because of my work, I get a lot of um, newspaper subscriptions paid for, which is great. But there is one that I pay for myself, which I feel like is a glowing endorsement of how important I find it if I'm willing to fork over money for it. It's called Cynicism, Bill Bishop. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so I pay an annual fee for that and I open it every day and, and read it every day because it just gives such a wide ranging roundup of what's happening in China. You know, you're getting a, a fantastic curation. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thank you, Oscar. I've really enjoyed it. Me too.
0: And before you leave, the last thing is, out of everyone you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview for the next season of Mosaic of China?
1: I would recommend you interview Eric Liu, who is the CTO of a Chinese tech company um, called DigiTwin Technologies. His company does a lot with um, smart cities, technology, big data. I should also say that my husband works there, so that's how I know about them. And I think that You know, it's an area with so much potential and where China is leading so much of this technology. It'd be really interesting to talk to him. You had me at big data. (laughs) Thank you again, Casey. Thank you.
0: So the updates. Since we recorded this episode, the age of Casey's kids are now six, four and two. And as we speak, the family are all preparing to set off on a summer holiday to Yunnan. So hopefully Casey will be able to cross off a few more destinations from her original list. Also, I realized that I never actually allowed Casey to reveal the conclusions of her piece about the current status of the Daigo trade in China. She let me know that it is still going strong and hasn't been killed off by the pandemic. And as for human flesh Daigo, They still can't travel to Jeju Island in Korea, but instead they've been going south to the Chinese island of Hainan, where duty-free policies have been relaxed over the last year. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there is, of course, an extra 10 to 15 minutes from my conversation with Casey in the premium version of the show. Here are a few clips.
1: It was kind of like the job that I had dreamed about at journalism school. Meeting people and talking to people are the things that I most enjoy about journalism as a career. Yeah. There are redline topics that you know that you can't write about. But how do you prove anyone exists? How do you prove anyone exists? Um, uh. It's very difficult. It will be much harder for a Chinese censor to pick up the tone of what you're writing. My mother-in-law, she was like, nope, not enjoying this at all. <laughs> To follow the graphics
0: alongside today's episode, please find us on Instagram or Facebook, or add me on WeChat at Mosaic of China, and I'll add you to a group for listeners there. There's a lot there today, not least being Casey's object, the Lonely Planet book, her favourite WeChat sticker of a dweeby Elon Musk, some fashionable girls from Chengdu, and that amazing mint-conditioned Star Wars poster from 1978 Hong Kong. And did you notice any of the connections with previous episodes of Mosaic of China? Casey's story about Mei Banfa was very similar to that of Wendy Saunders, the architect from Season 2, Episode 12. Her favourite destination of Jiu Jai was the same as Sebastian Denez, the diversity and inclusion advocate from Season 1, Episode 11. Casey said she would miss Jianbing if she left China, and so would Lexi Comstock, the cookie entrepreneur from Season 1, Episode 20. She would not, however, miss Chinese bureaucracy, and neither would Zhang Ziyuan, the humanities professor from Season 2, Episode 3. And finally, Casey's favourite China news source was Sinocism, which was the same answer as Noah Sheldon, the documentary filmmaker from Season 1, Episode 9. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell. We're now halfway through the calendar year of 2021, can you believe it? Coming right up is a catch up chat with V Vu, the fitness community leader from season one, episode eight, and I'll see you again next time. Hello to you, V.
2: Hi, Oscar.
0: We are doing this remotely because you are not in Shanghai right now.
2: No, I'm actually now in Ho Chi Minh City in um, Vietnam. So, sort of have been here for now over a year. What is the story then? So, like most people, I had actually gone on holidays for um, CNY. So, at that time, didn't think that the breakout in Wuhan was a big deal. But obviously, it wasn't to be like that. Uh, But I had gone on holidays to Malaysia at the time um, with my partner Me and my partner had at that time been doing a long distance relationship, so he was already living in Vietnam. He actually proposed to me um, on that holiday, that particular holiday. So Congratulations. uh, Thank you, thank you. Um, So it was a funny decision to make. I had planned on going into Vietnam with him and then eventually going back to Shanghai. But it just got to the point where we just we had to make a decision and it was the decision to go into Vietnam now already knowing that Vietnam was really quite strict on closing the borders. So that's what's happened and so I've, I've not been to China since.
0: That's interesting because actually in my mind you were in Vietnam on holiday and you just got stranded there and actually your story is a little bit better than that because you had already planned to be in Vietnam. Your partner, now fiancé, is in Vietnam. And so your life was there, ready for you to live it. You just did it a little bit early without any goodbyes, basically.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, there, there was the intention of coming here anyways. And so at this stage, we had actually never lived together. So it was okay. a very quick way. It sped up the relationship. I'm really grateful for this time because what COVID actually helped me to do was slow down.
0: Let me interrupt you there because I think some people who may not have heard our original episode wouldn't know you had a job in a French fashion company and you were also the co-founder and one of the leaders of FitFam, which is a fitness community. So, you were already juggling a hell of a lot. So what actually is the story now? Are you still with that French company and are you still involved with FitFam?
2: So I am still the executive director of FitFam. In December 2019, we actually switched to virtual workouts anyways. So at the moment, I still lead three to four workouts a week. I am no longer working for the French company. I actually um, had planned to leave that company anyway. So um, finished up with them in March last year. And now that I'm in Vietnam, I learned Vietnamese full time.
0: That's great. That's how you make lemonade out of lemons right there. And FitFam is still basically your baby. Like I see the passion in your eyes when you talk about it. Tell me about how FitFam looks today.
2: So currently we're in 14 cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Hangzhou, Suzhou, Wuxi, Wenzhou, Shenzhen. And um, outside mainland China, we've got um, Taipei, Hong Kong, Germany, France, uh, US. We also have Singapore as well. Um, Can I
0: interrupt you? Because did you actually mm -hmm? mention Ho Chi Minh City in that list?
2: No, (laughs) no I didn't actually and I do have a confession to make and it's just and it's why I haven't started um, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, So we actually did officially get married.
0: Congratulations.
2: But but we're also expecting. So um, I had a
0: feeling you um, were going to say that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Actually not a lot of people know that. Um, But we're due in July and that's why Fitfan Ho Chi Minh hasn't quite happened because i first of all was unsure of what was going to happen in the future and now that we know what's going to happen in the future it just might take a little bit of time but i do plan on doing that at some stage
0: (laughs) wow and i can quite clearly see the different chapters how the v before you came to shanghai didn't really know herself and then grew in shanghai and became the v that i knew and then now I do see this as being a whole new story, which obviously you're still writing it.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what the future looks like. I have really missed working full time, that interaction of working in teams, um, being in and around the apparel industry and things like that. I really value that independence.
0: Well, let's see. I have a feeling that um, whatever you do, you're going to do it with the full 120%. That is the usual way of Vivu. I'm gonna have to let you go. Um, It's been wonderful to catch up with you. And I should say also that unfortunately, the person who you recommended for the next season, like you, she had a different change in her setup and she couldn't end up participating in the project, but we found a nice replacement. So I'm going to be releasing this update chat alongside that new replacement. So you know who is gonna be your pseudo connection for season two. Oh,
2: fantastic.
0: Thank you so much, V, and congratulations with all of your news. Please keep in touch. I hope we see each other again soon.
2: Thank you so much.